0: wonder where the intersection of helpful advice, sagely wisdom, professional services, and certification hamster wheels converge? You do? Well, that's excellent, because today we're joined by some rugged mercenaries of the enterprise consulting world who will dust off their boots, grab a cold mug of frothy ale, and share some of their insights with you. I am Chris Wall. You can follow me at Chris Wall on Twitter. And with me is my co-host who eats noodles with a spoon like a barbarian, Ethan Banks. That's at EC Banks on Twitter. And this is the Didonuts Podcast. You can find this at all of our shows on iTunes, in your favorite podcatcher, or at packapushers.net.
1: So you know what's really funny about the noodles with a spoon, which I know you made up on the flight? That actually just happened in the last half an hour between the last show and this show that we're recording today. I did eat noodles with a spoon. You're a barbarian.
0: So let's introduce our illustrious guest today, starting with Jason Nash. Welcome to the show. Who are you? What is it that you do?
2: Thank you. So I'm Jason Nash. I am a field CTO for Rubrik. I just recently moved out of the partner side where I was with partners for about 10 years. So I'm happy to talk about this subject and a little bit happy that I don't have to talk about it quite as much every day. (laughs) But, you know, it gives good perspective and we'll see where it goes.
0: And I see you have a note here that you're a better skeet shooter than I am.
2: That is correct, yes.
0: And, and you're living the plot hound life, which is right. the worst hashtag ever. <laughs>
2: you made that up, by the way. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, welcome to the show. I wanted to catch you while you were still living the, the grudgery of consulting, but I know you've been doing it forever and you've got the, you've got the consulting crust still on you. It's still a nice thick sheen That's right. of, of that pain. Uh, we also have Josh Cohen. Welcome to the show. And who are you? What do you do? I'm a cloud architect at Sirius Computer Solutions, primarily focused on AWS, pretty
3: much my day in, day out. I don't have any crust yet because I'm still living the dream.
0: (laughs) I think everybody has a little crust. right? Well, There's always a a little. That's none of your business. (laughs) Okay, well, we'll dive right (laughs) into it. The first topic I kind of wanted to address was the overarching theme of data center transformation. I know I was doing consulting for the better part of five years, and a lot of the effort we'll say in the, you know, around 2008, 2009 timeframe all the way through 2015, when I left was data center transformation. A lot of that was virtualization. So I'm just curious, how does virtualization factor into the efforts that are being undertaken by companies that you're working with within that strategy? I mean, in essence, are we still building out more vSphere and Hyper-V clusters? Are, are we kind of done with that? Or is that still is that still a focus? Just kind of getting a temperature of the room here.
2: I mean, I think it's still being done, obviously. It's a little bit more complexity than it used to be and on one side, meaning we're doing, you know, cross site clusters and things like that. But you know, the underlying infrastructure and the tools and the management have obviously gotten simpler and that's been a big drive that I've seen over the years. I mean, it's what Hyper did for that kind of platform as well for storage. So I think the short answer is yeah, we're still seeing people deploy those new, but it's it's kind of one of those things It's just table stakes now. It's we don't spend nearly as much time on it, I don't think.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I guess, question for you, Josh, then. Is there a shift that you're seeing? Because I know you mentioned AWS in your, in your preamble towards putting our efforts more up the stack, you know, quote fingers there, uh, away from the, the core infrastructure stuff.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a shift. I mean, even if you look at, you know, you ask any product seller that's working at a, at a bar or an SI today, I mean, they're going after these deals, these product deals still, these infrastructure deals, but... The sales cycle is longer. There's more competition. There's less margin. I mean, we're seeing it all across the board, not just storage, not just virtualization, but I mean, any point of infrastructure, Nash is doing this next gen stuff at at Rubrik. And so he may not be seeing as much as that, but I guarantee as he's partnering with other folks to maybe sell a solution and not just uh, backup, I mean, cloud data management, I'm sure he's seeing that rift there as well. You're welcome. Are you driven
1: maybe less by infrastructure and more by applications now, where the context of the conversation is about some specific apps that a bunch of companies are focusing on? That's driving what decisions are being made and what consulting services are being asked for?
3: To some extent, it really depends on the size of the organization and who you're talking to. If you're talking to the infrastructure guy and he just wants to continue to be an infrastructure guy, you're going to talk about the next vSphere upgrade. You're going to talk about maybe converting from a 3 tier to hyperconverged, you probably aren't going to have the application discussion. But if you're talking to pretty much anybody else that's not in IT or if you're with somebody in IT that gets it, and not really get it, I don't mean as a derogatory term, but something that's, <laughs> that's not just stuck in that mode and afraid of change, then you can start to have some interesting conversations, even if it's just infrastructure as code, because that can lead into a whole slew of things to start driving upstack.
0: The interesting thing I'll pick out of both of your answers so far has been a mention of hyperconverged and just kind of rolling back the Wayback Machine of Datanauts. That was our first first or second episode of the show. We actually started with hyperconverged and converged because two years ago that was that was a, a very popular topic. I guess because it helps alleviate some of the operational infrastructure issues, but is that still kind of a hot and, and maybe upward trending thing that you're talking with people about?
2: I think so. If you look at it, I mean to me you can't really if we're transforming how we operate IT and infrastructure and app deployments, you know, and everything, we have to simplify infrastructure. We have to make it where we can drive it using APIs that we can automate it, we can orchestrate it. And I think at the end of the day, HCI simplifies that greatly against a three-tier architecture. So, but I still find it interesting, you know, uh, Josh and I both know a lot of the Nutanix people here in the Southeast, Right. And just the other day, they were telling us they still hit customers all the time that literally have no idea what Nutanix does. And mm. it, it just floors me that anywhere in IT, whether it's state, local government, up through Fortune you know, 100 IT, how in the world do you not at least know what Nutanix and HCI is at any level? So I think that sometimes we get a the gap between the front leading organizations and those kind of bringing up the rear on innovation is much wider than a lot of people realize and it's only getting worse and these sorts of things i think signify that you know we still spend a lot of time talking about infrastructure resellers still get the vast majority of their revenue and margin off of selling boxes and infrastructure and these cloud services are just the kind of leading spear and most hope that you know you get that leading spear in and then gather all that other revenue on the back end for the infrastructure and other services so yeah, I mean, we still, at least from my point of view, still have those conversations, or we're having those conversations uh, very, very recently.
3: Yeah, and I'd just say, you know, if you think about when Nutanix and some of the other hyperconverged players really started to gain traction and credibility, that might have been 2013, 2014. Some companies are just now hitting their refresh cycle. Their last one might have been in 2012 to 2013, and they weren't really looking at HCI back then. So it's definitely still very relevant to a a good majority of our customers.
1: If there's people out there who aren't really even in the HCI world yet or unfamiliar with it, what in the world are they doing with hybrid cloud? Because we we talk about that all the time, like that's a major initiative, which it is for a, a, a lot of companies. But what does that end up looking like to the people that you're talking to every day? Is there like an architecture that you can reference at this point for what hybrid cloud is tending to look like or definitions that you've come up with based on your clients' needs?
3: Usually every conversation ends up being hybrid. It might start public, but it usually ends up being hybrid, 90 plus percent, I would say. But again, those conversations usually come out of different lines of business. Sometimes it's the infrastructure team, but sometimes it's the app dev team. Heck, sometimes it's the procurement team because they have 30 different lines of businesses expensing AWS spend, and they're trying to get control of that. So... It's amazing and we have other customers where it's the electrical engineers cuz they built some IoT device to integrate into their product on their own. And you go in, you have a meeting with these folks and the IT people are there but they don't say anything for 7 hours.
2: So let me ask this, out of those discussions and kind of compare experience, how many of those do you think are hybrid cloud discussions against multi-cloud discussions? You know, against actually integration movement similar operational processes between private and public, what I would consider to be really a hybrid, or we have stuff here in our data center, and we have stuff there in AWS or on Azure or GCP, and just being two disparate places that they're managing individually.
3: Well, I mean, from my perspective, multi-cloud today is kind of like single pane of glass. It's a pipe dream. It's going to be really (laughs) hard to get there. I mean, really people can't even, like the processes that have to be in place just to have a a well-run public or hybrid cloud is is not a a menial task. So now you can put multiple clouds in there where constructs are different and then you're architecting to the lowest common denominator half the time if you're trying to get portability. People talk about it and maybe they have a multi-cloud requirement, but they don't really have a multi-cloud requirement. It's something they read in a sky magazine
0: yeah yeah yeah. i think it also depends upon you know we have our definitions for these sorts of things you know hybrid cloud being i have an application i've kind of spaghettied it across on-prem and some public cloud provider and then multi-cloud it tends to get a little bit murkier you know it's the idea of in some camps i'm using multiple public cloud providers which is kind of like eh, sad trombone it's not really what it's all about it's it's more i'm using multiple clouds to provide A platform for my service or my applications and that tends to be a bit more challenging i think because now we're talking about potentially hitting those challenges that you bring up josh the least common denominator across all these and potentially having to build a lot of code or 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 processes on top of that that commonality that that sounds like a challenge are are people kind of doing that saying like okay i'm going to have the the front end spread across Azure and and GCP or something like that? Or or what do they mean when you're talking to a customer and you say multi-cloud? What kind of is the light bulb moment for them?
3: Really, it's around twofold, right? The example that you gave around having, you know, web servers or something spread across, or they'll have maybe one application in Azure or GCP and another one in AWS, that would be maybe the second one. But you have to realize, you know, that The implications that come with that around egress traffic. I mean, just take a look at some, and and I hate to invoke like these big names, but I'm going to because (laughs) it's going to illustrate a point. Look at Netflix. Netflix, huge company, tons of assets in AWS. They don't have a multi-cloud strategy, right? If they can operate at the scale that they do with the uptime that they do, why does anybody else need multi cloud?
0: I knew you were going to invoke Netflix as soon as you were like, "crusty yeah. <laughs> I, I was waiting for the end, you know, the Netflix uh, logo to come out. I'm not going to say Uber. Or okay. Tesla. Well, let's switch gears a little bit because uh, I think that's a semantics game. Let's focus back on the data center for a bit. Going back to the theme of data center transformation, is the data center shrinking? That's really a high level question, but is part of the transformation that maybe folks are undergoing or witnessing as they approach you know, let's say goals for 2020 is to shrink footprint or shrink the amount of virtual workloads that are running there. Curious that first. And then where is it going? If you think it is shrinking?
2: I think I use the analogy like, you know, going back to like, you know, a pie, right? I think we have to talk about in terms of percentages or in terms of total number of workloads, because percentage wise, obviously things are going to move to public cloud more and more. We're just now in the beginning phases of that. But I think pure numbers of workloads, it'll probably stabilize within, you know, private data centers. Everybody you talk to wants to shrink their data center sizing. They want to reduce that footprint. But, you know, from what I've seen time and time again, at the end of the day, what they're doing is slowing growth of the on-prem data center. And so they're not really reducing it nearly as much, I think is originally expected. And sometimes that's a problem because, When you talk to CEOs and they start working on their cloud initiatives and cloud strategies, part of the benefit of consuming public cloud is to try to reduce cost with the on-premises data center. And then if you don't, it kind of puts a little bit of a wrench in the works. But I don't think we're seeing people really reduce yet, but I think, you know, talk to me in five years and we'll probably really start to see the leading edge of that as more and more organizations really start to refactor their applications, their software vendors start to deliver cloud ready applications. Right now, we're in this weird in between phase where some people are doing it well, a lot of people are doing it badly. And a lot of people are still sitting on the sidelines kind of waiting to see what they need to do and what's going to happen.
1: You mentioned cloud ready apps. Is that indeed coming? We've seen noises from vendors that they're going to start repackaging so that uh, companies can deploy on cloud if they want?
2: I've seen it. Josh can probably speak even more, but I mean, we're I'm starting to see more and more apps, either SaaS, obviously, that's really a separate discussion. But, you know, we're seeing a lot more of these on-prem apps go to SaaS offerings, but more and more starting to see things being offered around, you know, using containers so that they can be easily portable and then just offering, you know, AWS or Azure as a certified platform to run it on. So. You know, it's funny, I don't think it's quite as fast as I thought it would. It's not like when people kind of said, you can run this on VMware, you know, it keeps us out of the hardware certification game. Not seeing that quite as much, I think, in the public cloud space on enterprise apps, but there's definitely this drip is turning into a steady stream.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd say that anyone developing new applications today, obviously, are, are making them for the cloud. Typically, they're not like, hey, let me make this for this big monolithic mainframe. Most people aren't doing that. So new apps, sure. Enterprise apps, it's such a mixed bag of, uh, of what's out there and, and a lot of the dependencies that go along with it and if it can even be made cloud-ready. So, yeah, from that perspective, it's you know a mixed bag. Like Nash said, people were waiting on the sidelines. I'd like to know what kind of pie you were talking about. Is it pumpkin or, or something else, Nash, earlier?
2: It's always pumpkin.
3: Yeah, I figured. <laughs>
1: What this made me think about, Chris, businesses are focused on their business. They aren't focused on trends in IT. So, we're, you know, like, oh, my word, these guys don't know about hybrid cloud or HCI or whatever, because they're they're just kind of stuck at that point in time when they were last paying attention to what's been going on in IT. And if they haven't had a refresh cycle, why would they have necessarily kept up? So they don't know what vendors are making, what the bleeding edge companies are buying, what analysts and pundits are writing and podcasting about And, and I guess that's okay because it just reinforces the need for the VAR world. You know, you need those experts you can talk to and have on your side when it is time for that refresh, when it's time to make a change. That's that's a good thing, I guess, because it's that's what you need to do as a business owner. Focus on your business. What grabbed your attention?
0: I disagree a little if if they aren't hearing about this stuff you should you should tell them as as their trusted advisor that they should start listening to data knot. so that's just my, that's, my own that's little that's fair there. absolutely <laughs> uh, my actual takeaway was I I thought it was interesting the comment I think Josh made it about shrinking the data center was my proposal and he said it's actually more about let's slow down the growth of the data center and I thought that was like that's an interesting it seems subtle but it's an interesting way of looking at it because after all I suppose it's somewhat difficult to shrink a physical building. And it's it's more about talking about the workloads, the applications, or potentially if you're in a colo, shrinking your footprint, such as the, the cage size of the racks.
1: Well, let's shift the conversation ahead to talk about certifications, one of my favorite topics. I have done a lot of certifications over the years. Don't have any currently. have been kind of looking, seeing what I might do, poking around at the AWS, never-ending list of new certifications you can get. Now, a lot of people, me included, historically, they get certs because you want to get a raise or you want to find a new job. Uh, now, you guys in the VAR world, what's the value that certifications hold for, for you guys? I know there was always... Back in the day, I used to manage a, a small shop that was a Cisco partner, and we had to have certified people on staff to make Cisco happy and and so on. Is that... Still the world there or what's going on?
2: (laughs) Unfortunately, yes. So you still have your required certs across your vendors for different partner levels. Cisco is really the master at that and not not really in a bad way. They have done a fantastic job of creating certification tiers across the product lines and then promoting it both with their partners internally and externally. So I always point to Cisco as, as a good one. But that's always a struggle, especially when you bring on new people. You've got to run, you know, account reps. You've got to run pre-sales engineers. You've got to run delivery engineers. you got to get certified. And then the other side of it is, is that you obviously want to have qualified individuals. And, you know, there are times that customers do request certified people, especially when you respond to like an RFP that you'll, you know, want to have certified people do this or do that. But it's a hamster wheel, especially in the bar world, because I mean, I remember when I was with Vero. We would hit November, December every year, and all of a sudden Cisco would want us to have 30 of these random data center fabric version 3.2 certifications <laughs> to, to maintain. So all of a sudden I'm handing out, you know, 250 and $500 spiffs for people to go get these things just so we check those boxes. And, you know, I think it's interesting. We can get into the certs that people may want to go for, but from a consulting and bar side, there's a lot of forced certification, if you will just to kind of tread water and and maintain what you're doing.
1: Back before I was managing a group, I was just one of the engineers and, hey, uh, how do you want to go get get some compact certification or whatever it was back in the day? Boy, I just dated myself big time there, compact certs. Yeah, it was way back there because we needed someone that had this particular compact certification on site so that we could do X, whatever the business was, or hit some sort of a discount level that would help us earn a little bit more margin. Uh, And so, right, that hamster wheel that goes on and then just the pressure that you felt as an engineer to keep and maintain those certs when some of these tests are bloody hard. It sounds like it's kind of the same. It is.
2: It's a struggle, especially those especially those kind of partner only certs, like if you're not at a partner, these things really never hit you. They're these, you know, these very specific different ones and, and, you know, there's nothing out there to study for them. So it's like, look, just go take the test next week, fail it, figure out what you need to go do. And let's go back so we can maintain our advanced unified data center, fabric specialist certification or whatever, just so we can get, like you said, additional discount or, you know, back in rebates. And so that gets really tough because you've got engineers, you've got pre-sales, guys, you've got everybody who really wants to go out and do, you know, they want to be a CCIE or they want to go for their VCX or they're working on AWS certs, but they're trudging along, carrying around these other 20 smaller certs that expire every two years. So it's tough and it's hard to get people motivated to do those when, you know, you really don't want to go get a cert on a specific version of a specific product unless you're really trying to break into, you know, maybe you're an delivery engineer and you want to start doing hyperconverged. So you go take the Nutanix one because you're you know you're jumping up and down to go do that. But it's such a struggle and such a, such a time sink for those things.
1: Well, you end up with some of the really experienced engineers, like you said, just tired of being on the treadmill. They may be the best person for the job, but because they just don't want to go take that cert exam and get through it, you can't put them on the job because they don't have the letters.
2: That's right. I mean, who does all the, the sales search for a new partner? The new reps and the inside sales reps. Who does all the, you know, the basic delivery search? The new guys. And so, you know, that's just part of your initiation as you come on a lot of times to a partner. But your senior guys, again, they're worried about their CCIEs or DXs, their other things. And, you know, they don't want to deal with the smaller stuff. And luckily, Sometimes you can just get away with having one person on staff or two people on staff with it. It's not so much about a customer engagement, but occasionally a customer will want I want CCIEs to review this. We want some really good RFPs because we, you know, the customer put in there, they wanted a VCDX to review an architecture. And at the time I was the only one in the Southeast. So that was, you know, that was one of the very, very few benefits of having my DX. (laughs) But, you know, in those cases, it's good. That's the old Cisco. You got to have X number of CCIEs to be a gold partner and RFPs are going to ask for gold. So you see that push in that space, but it's just, it it burns people out.
0: I have kind of a a deeper question since we have the rare opportunity that there are a number of the VMware certified design experts on here. Talking about partner tiers and things like that, I have seen murmuring in various blog posts and whatnot, kind of lamenting on the fact that there's so few VCDXs. I think we're in the 250-ish, you know, we haven't hit 300 yet and the program is, what, a decade old. Do you feel like that maybe there should be a requirement to have VCDX as a premium partner tier or whatever VMware's tiers are, I'm a little out of date today. Is, is, that, is that a downfall to it? Do you kind of like that you don't have to run through the treadmill on that? Just general thoughts. I guess, Josh, starting with you. Sorry, I was still stuck on Compaq. I
3: bet you can, are you a, <laughs> you're an AOL moderator? <laughs> That's just mean, man. Come all on. Right, you, well, all right. We've actually talked about this nationally in one of the slacks we're on with some other folks about. What is VMware going to do around around that? Right, as, as as Nash mentioned around Cisco, you know you have to have X number of CCIEs for a particular partner level. VMware doesn't have that, right? So there's not a ton of incentive, especially today, I think, for new new uh, or partners to incent their people to get VMware certifications, especially the top tier ones. So I, I think unless VMware makes a change they're not going to see that program grow at any faster pace. And it's probably going to slow.
2: Agreed. Hmm.
0: Jason, what are you thinking?
2: I mean, I want to go on record, like, and I've said this many times at the advisory board with VMware. If you do not make this a requirement, then the program is dead. And right now I feel that the DX is on life support. I mean, we're not at 500 yet. We're not at the thousand that we need to be right now. And due to that, I would find it. I, if somebody came to me and said, I'm really thinking about doing my VCDX right now, what do you think? I would have a really long conversation with them about what they expect to get out of it, what they think the benefits are, because right now there's just not enough marketing and push both within VMware to the partner community and out to customers. Most customers are much more impressed with a expert than they are a VCDX because they don't understand the differences and they don't really know what the DX entails. And I hate to say it, but I think it's been very mismanaged and not just the DX, but a lot of the VMware certifications, especially over the last three to five years. So as much time as a lot of us on this, on this mm-hmm. podcast have put into it, I'm very disappointed to kind of see it languish like it is right now.
0: Well, fair enough. I didn't want to go too far in the weeds there, but it's nice to hear some input. And, and obviously, I think everyone that's gone through it or pursued it is pretty passionate about it. Moving the topic just slightly here, prior to the to the VCDX lamentation, we talked about a lot of these checkbox kind of certifications. Do you still feel like you're learning anything from these exams? Like, are you actually being challenged or, or getting some some value beyond the checkboxes or, or are you a little, a little bit more cynical? I, I guess since Josh doesn't have all the crust, we'll we'll start with him first. <laughs> well
3: not yet anyway um you know it depends on the cert the vcdx or like the aws even associate and professional exams i learned a lot on the way right so some now some of these ones that nash was talking about these end of year like hey you know we want to be the titanium platinum collaboration guy on uh, avaya phones those things that you're just doing to check the box no you're not learning anything it's just to get the requirement or meet the requirement but th- these higher level certs or deeper level certs, rather, that, you know, you can't get things like a test gang on and you have to actually sit down and study and have use with the platform. To me, those are useful just e- even in a learning in a learning aspect. Right. If you don't have a project to get started on or, if, you know, if, if your employer is not pushing you to do it, but you just really want to learn, you know, that to me, that's that's one way to have a path to that.
1: You mentioned test king and there's a whole bunch of these uh, companies out there that'll basically give you the exam so you kind of know what you're doing ahead of time and uh, you, you're going to see all the questions if you can memorize them, which has been a this game between the companies that'll give you the questions and then the vendors who are making the test to try to keep a step ahead so that uh, you actually see some questions maybe you haven't seen before. Is that, I, I guess we're looking for the ugly underneath. I mean, is that the sad reality of some of these certs that are people are just cranking through them to get them done by whatever means possible and not learning
3: just because they got to check that box checked? I think it depends on the test. I mean, I'm not going to say whether back in the day I use these things, but you know, the MCSC, MCITP, those things were like, you know, 10 tests, 11 tests. You know, I might've done that in 10 days, right? And it's not from studying. I use these things called test games. <laughs> but when you get things like VCDX and some of these AWS certs, like you can't use those especially if it's hands on or if it's scenario based you know unless they actually have the questions and they don't change enough you know a lot of these scenario or hands on based tests there's no other choice but to study for them even the ccna even yeah. the ccna you had to do these simulators or whatever
1: yeah, well, even CCIE, a long time ago, that was true. And then, you know, Cisco's only got so, I don't know what the current state of it is, but it used to be that there's only so many different scenarios they'll give you on the lab portion of the CCIE exam set. There's a, the qualification exam and then the lab practical exam that you go sit for a day and then then in recent years yeah people started issuing the actual labs that you would get in there I'm, I'm presuming cisco's dealt with that but it actually got to that point even in that exam so it's a frustrating world in certifications the things that we've whined about before on data knot so i don't suppose
0: we have to spend too much time there but it's not whining man it's it's contemplating
1: it's just frustrating you know <laughs> i've done so many certs and this the whole epidemic and the and the frustrating bit of the ability to cheat versus the ability to earn, and and then you put someone who's afar, you're a far or your reseller and an engineer working on that team in the position of here's a thousand certs we'd like you to maintain. You know, it's it's incredible. It's incredibly difficult to deal with all of those situations fairly, and it puts people in an impossible
0: situation a lot of times. So, speaking of the number of certifications you've had to go through, Ethan, you seem to really have some battle scars there. I've, I'm, I'll, I'll give you a virtual hug. There you go. Thanks, buddy. (laughs) Guys, how many certifications are too many? When when do you just have to throw up your hand and say, you know what, if I get another one of these things, I won't even be able to stand the treadmill anymore because all I'm going to be doing is refreshing certifications. Is it a number? Is it a quantity? Is it too many vendors? Like what metrics do you use to kind of say, Maybe to your boss or even to yourself, like, this is enough. I'm gonna push back. And, and also I think that gives a lens into the world of consulting for those that are in that world, where you may be like, Yeah, I got my three certifications and those that are in the var world are like, I have sixty of them to help understand that. <laughs> I think Nash,
3: the problem with that question for us, Nash and I are probably really <laughs> jaded. <laughs> so like I don't I my VCP expired. Yep. I don't even I don't even know if I can upgrade my V C D X if I wanted to like, because <laughs> that's a requirement, right? So I I mean yeah i've done some aws stuff cuz you know i i wanted to learn it and progress so i i took the certs as part of that as part of that learning but i mean for me i mean i don't know that's a hard question
0: to answer but but is that is that kind of part of it then you say you let your you let a cert expire is that because you've reached the this is too many marker maybe i mean i think part of it was
3: what do i need to renew my vcp for if i'm a vcdx that was, i mean that was part of it but i don't know if it's a number right uh, nash what do you think
2: you know, I don't, I don't think it's a number. I think, to me, it's all about what is still relevant. You know, I'm letting my VCP roll. I'm probably going to let my DX go, you know, uh, be emeritus and not worry about that too much just because these things aren't relevant anymore. And I think, you know, and there's obviously different layers here as we go through with, you know, a guy or girl that comes on as like a junior delivery engineer, right? They're going to do a bunch of these certs because, one, that's part of their job. They want to learn it. They want to make a name for themselves. And I think as you progress, you kind of start going for bigger ones and then letting other ones kind of fall off. So, you know, I remember a time when we were going through our Cisco Silver program. And after that, I was like, all right, I'm not renewing my CCNP. I don't do this stuff. I have to start from ground zero every time I do this. I'm not doing it. And, you know, just communicating that these things are going to drop off. And then, you know, the next December, I said, I'm not doing this 10 random cert thing this year. Let's figure out who we can hand these off to because it's not worth my time to to deal with this. So, some people love them. You know, you'll find those people that have 50 different certs and that's just what their game is and that's cool. But you also find people, I think I've gotten to this point, I think Josh is there where I use a new cert as a goal post. Like I'm going to do some uh I keep, you know, start and stop in the AWS ones, but I'm going to do those and we'll do a couple of the Azure's. Just because I want to have an end goal as I go through and learn this stuff and then go, okay, I did that. That's cool. And it gives me kind of a status marker. And to me, that's what certs are today. It's They're just kind of status, but I don't use them to progress my career. But I think, you know, those of us on here, were kind of in further along than a lot of people in this industry where they are still using those to further their career. And I kind of had some pushback on the Slack, you know, Josh and I are on for some of the old Vero team. of the other day, I'm like, I'm done with certs. I don't know why anybody does them. And so people made some great comments. Some of our delivery engineers and pre-sales made some great comments on, you know, well, I want to go do this and I want to learn that. And I think, OK, those are those are very valid reasons.
0: Fair enough. And I'll just challenge those listening to the show. Uh, if you tweet at data underscore show. What, what was your favorite certification exam and why or, or least favorite? And I'm just curious, just the name of the certification, Josh, your favorite one, j- just the name. VCDX. And Jason to you as well.
2: Same. Just due to the process and the whole thing.
0: All right. Oh, man. I totally remember those Cisco unified fabric, whatever type certifications that had basically zero roots in the practical world. I I was pretty foo-foo on them when I had to take them. And I had to chew through one, a new one, like every couple months or so. I I really did not enjoy that. And this was, ironically, to give Cisco like a kudos, one of the the primary reasons I started to pursue the CCI data center exam. I mean, obviously I was interested in the technology, but when I found out that the written exam would refresh all of the expiration dates of the 30 plus checkbox certs I had to take, I was like, yeah, I'm going down that route. So I was happy that they enabled me to do that. It was a nice thing for them to do so that I can keep everything up to date. What about you, Ethan? Just in case someone heard me talking about
1: certs in a disparaging way, and we talked about Test king and some of the cheating that's gone on, um, I, I just want to make it clear. I still think certifications are really a fantastic way to learn if you use them in the right way. So if you're going to do that, pick the sort of certifications that align with your career goals. you know, be smart about the search you're going to pursue and then pass them. And uh, that can open up some really interesting doors. So projects that maybe you wouldn't have been able to do or be involved with, there's now practical knowledge and you can demonstrate your abilities because of that cert. And uh, and that's a good thing that can move your career along. And and again, just underscoring, I do think certs are still a, a great way to learn if you do it in the right way.
0: Well, now that we've had that nice, I guess, restorative discussion on certifications and we've kind of been in the sauna of old wounds, let's shift a bit and talk about at a broad level what technologies are taking up your time because they align well with what your consulting practice or your partnerships are looking for. Not necessarily what you want to be doing, but, but what are you focusing on? Because that's what the business kind of requires you to, to work on.
3: For me, I'm focused just on cloud, uh, mainly AWS. But I, I mean, thankfully, it's what I want to focus on. So I'm I'm lucky in that sense that you know we're trying to build that business even more It's serious. So, and that's what I want to do right now.
2: I think for me, it's a similar discussion, slightly different.
3: Backup. Backup.
2: <laughs> he's, he's a mean. He's a mean. Data You know, coming out of the consulting side into into rubric, it's really around a lot more kind of consumption discussions or what I'm in and, you know, what are the organizations one, three, and five-year plans? So, you know, my role for the last few years has definitely been around talking about strategy and how we work with these organizations. And that hasn't changed since moving over to the rubric side of the house, where really I'm in to talk about what they're doing in the, you know, the public cloud space. What do they want to consume? How can we help them get there? What do we offer? What's their DR planning? So a lot of my time is spent in kind of one leg in each area amongst being on-premises as well as public cloud. But really today, I think it's most people are probably, you know, really focusing on those forward-thinking pieces and I had a discussion on Reddit the other day with somebody who was like, you know, I'm a sysadmin. I've been doing this stuff for a while, VMware Storage Networking. They're like, my skills are 100% obsolete. I'm like, you're crazy. Like, you know, go learn this other stuff. But those skills are not obsolete. And there's still those discussions there, even though everybody's having these talks. I don't want people to think that all of a sudden the entire world is moving that direction. And what they've learned over the last 10 years is, is suddenly non-existent.
3: Well, and that's to, to Nash to that point. I mean, the good thing about that, and why I, I believe that's super accurate, is in, unless you're doing like cloud native stuff, and that's all you're doing, everybody that's been doing this stuff has started from bare metal on up, right? So, to what you said, those skills that are obsolete; those translate because just just like most applications, you know, they don't start in the cloud. There's a ton of legacy stuff out there, a lot more than there is, you know, cloud native air quotes, if, if that's what you want to call it. But yeah, I think that's, that's super on point.
1: So how do you guys find a balance between things that you want to learn versus things that you have to learn for your job? Because there's so much out there that you could get involved with.
3: Well, again, for me, I'm lucky enough to be able to, where those two, those two things coincide, right? You know, no one's pushing me to go get a Cisco cert or, a you know, a a riverbed cert or something like that, right? Or a compact cert or or a compact cert. They're right? coming back. Although I'm interested, <laughs> in that tra- interested in that track this summer. <laughs> for me, you know, I, I'm lucky. I think for others, you know, just based off experience, when that wasn't me, right? And I used to have to focus on stuff I wasn't really crazy about, but wanted to sort of uh, pursue a different path and get certifications. It's 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 hard to balance, right? Especially depending upon your workload a lot of it's after hours. It's just what do you want and how quickly do you want it will really depend on the balance that you can apply.
1: Are there things that you guys want to learn that you find you don't have time for? Like like personally, you're super interested in something and just the way the job demands are, it kind of squeezes out those those personal things. But, but yet if you had time, you'd really jump into them?
2: Oh, I think so. I mean, I think there's a number of things. I'd love to get really deep into a lot of, you know, the container orchestration and management pieces for example I mean I've been a VMware guy a long time I love the kind of philosophy there but you know I think I you know reasonable idea of where we're going and that's just one of those things that I personally don't deal with as an example on a day-to-day basis other than discussing you know how we kind of can help protect those so I think there's obviously things like that but other responsibilities get in the way and you you know, my friends not in IT think we're crazy. They think we're crazy because we work all day and half the night usually, and then we spend free time learning things that that we don't even do. And you don't see doctors, you know, brain surgeons go learning about, you know, heart (laughs) surgery, right? But we do. And I think that's the difference in this field, especially those that excel. You'll find over my years at Partners, you will find people that kind of pigeonhole and focus and they enjoy what they do and that's what they do and then you'll find the gamut up to those that work really hard do a great job and then nights and weekends they're learning that next thing or where they want to go and I hope people listening to the podcast are either in a position where 70 to 80 percent of your cert requirement or training requirement is focused around what you're really passionate about and the other 20 percent is just life you know and if you're not in that position I'm hoping that you're out learning and certifying to be able to move into that position because this industry is such a great place to be able to shift and move and do what you really love to do.
1: Yeah, but you have to find some kind of a focus, though. I mean, what, what I've noticed over the last few years is it feels like there were some tracks you could kind of specialize in and that was your thing. And now if you try to go more broad, which the new IT stack seems to demand that where you need to know a lot about a lot, it gets Frustrating to figure out what, what in the world there, there is to focus on. AWS, if you try to follow their blog, it's insane. There's so many services they keep announcing every week to the point that if you follow Corey Quinn's last week in AWS newsletter, he just picks out the best bits and he's still got like a dozen items of things that are kind of interesting coming out of AWS. In other words, you can't possibly keep up with all the things that are out there. No, you got to kind of focus on something and make that you know, home where you're going to be comfortable.
2: I agree and I think I mean if you look at AWS is there really anybody that needs to know every service on AWS? I mean I, I just I think sometimes as IT geeks we like to know as much about all of these things as we can and and I'm I'm bad about this right? I mean even being at Rubric I like to I like to talk about stuff at a very low I like to understand how we operate at a very low level just because it makes me feel more comfortable when I have these discussions even if they're high level. And I think as IT people we want to understand all the services that AWS offers, maybe not at a, you know, a really low level, but at least understand the when, where, and the why, but in in all actuality, how many people need to know that stuff? And do we need to segment that out? And I think that's a knock honestly against AWS that needs to kind of containerize that because you log into your AWS console and you're like, holy crap, I was in here two days ago. Now there's three new things. And I think some of that is just kind of a realignment of, of expectations with people.
0: Well, there is one person that needs to know all the services, the people that manage the the website that displays all the services. (laughs) (laughs) So so knowing that then, and I don't disagree, I I think one of the, maybe ironic, maybe not, I don't know, uh, one of the most important focuses you can have as an IT person is focusing on the ability to learn and the ability to really look at the various technologies from a business perspective, because that'll help kind of suss out the path to take because really it's just, it's an everlasting trip where you're trying to go up the down escalator, you know, and the, and the better that you can navigate that and stay moving versus people that stand still or walk very slowly and and don't make any progress up this infinite escalator are, are probably at the biggest disadvantage. So, so knowing that I'm sure there's people out there that work as you know, an enterprise IT person, they're, they're, you know, end users, customers, whatever we might term them as, they're not working at a consulting firm. If they're looking to enter this realm, what sort of skills, either technical, just professional, kind of GNA, whatever, would you suggest that they either polish up or or begin gaining that will help them onboard into this world? So for me, I mean, I would say let's start at, you know, either infrastructure as code,
3: start learning the basics of one of the public cloud platforms, even if you don't want to, if you're listening to this, if you're a storage guy or a network guy, virtualization guy, whatever, and you're just like, or gal, or gal. Yep. Fair point. And you're like, uh, you know, I don't want to change. Like if you don't change, you might become extinct. I mean, th- this industry is moving. And even if you're at a customer at some point, they're going to change and you're going to need to change with it. Or, you know, you're going to be gone. So st- whatever you do, start somewhere right? Just, just make the, that's half the battle. Uh, and so infrastructure as code, so something like Puppet, Chef, Ansible, you know, learn the basics of some of those, start to learn how to read JSON, learn how to write JSON. Those basic things is, is I think is a great way. And again, I, I would p- pick one of the major public cloud providers and start to learn even just some of the nomenclature, right? Whether it's Azure, AWS, GCP, To me, those are probably the top three.
2: I think that's good. I think, I mean, those along with, and then, I mean, going back to just a minute ago, you could specialize in nothing but, you know, high level networking or security in any of these public clouds. So I think there's a bit of knowing a lot of things across the board, and then there's still definitely specialties. And some things I think people don't really think about is as you're kind of moving, to me, as I move and have the discussions around public cloud consumption, I'm meeting and talking to a lot more different people at a customer than I was when I was doing data center refreshes. So go on like Pluralsight or somewhere, do the soft skills training, learn about how you, these people make money and learn about how organizations are structured and how decisions are made. Uh, I think that's one thing here we gloss over and circling this back to you know working with, In a consulting group, those skills right there are the hardest ones to find. And so if you want to be really successful, learn the technical pieces, learn the foundations, build from there, learn the soft skills, learn how to talk to a company, to a CIO, to an IT director, to anybody about what they're really facing as a challenge. Not are you out of this space, but, you know, what do you have coming up in projects over the next three, six, 12 months? How do you plan to get there? How can we help you? What kind of technologies do we think we need to do? That's really where these discussions start.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I'll definitely say but um, the, the two big ones for me were uh, learning to whiteboard in front of an audience and totally own it and not be bashful, uh, as well as, uh, man, if you could build a good scope of work, you're yeah. definitely cut off for consulting. That's <laughs> really hard to do that well and to not leave yourself exposed. Just, and to what Nash said, I think
3: those skills are good if you want to get into consulting, right? Or if you want to go yeah. work at a vendor. Right. Yeah. If you're on the, if you're on the customer side, it, yeah, it might be great to to learn some of that stuff. But
0: that's not what I would be starting out with. That's fair. So I think that'll cover today's episode of the Data Nuts. I'd like to thank both of y'all. I, I guess starting Josh, you know, appreciate you being on the show. Where can people find you if they want to reach out to you on the interwebs? Are you social? Do you blog, etc.?
3: Yeah. So on Twitter at Josh Cohen, no H. It's the Irish spelling, not the Jewish spelling. Uh, if you want to
0: read really outdated blog posts, go to valcolabs.com. And Jason, again, thanks for coming on here. I've been wanting to track you down for quite some time and only finally caught up with you. Where can people find you on the interwebs?
2: Sure. So uh, on Twitter, at at the Jason Nash. uh, There's a more famous Jason Nash. I stole that name. And uh, jasonnash.com is the blog that I used to write. And as I always say, I'm about to kick back up again so we'll see where it goes. And email us real simple, jason.nash at gmail.com.
0: And follow hashtag PlotHoundLife for for all your real... Real developments on the interweb. So, all right, that's it for today's edition of the Data nuts podcast. If you're a social creature, you can follow me at Chris Wall on Twitter, and my blog is wallnetwork.com. Or my delightful friend Ethan is at EC Banks on Twitter, and his blog is ethancbanks.com. For more of our Data Knot shows about infrastructure engineering, do a nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packetpushers.net. You'll find the Data Knots talking about containers, conferences, certifications, moving into the cloud, full stack engineering. There's a long list of wonderful topics for you to devour. Until then, may your server lights blink, your certifications last infinitely, and your cables be cleanly managed. actually wants to hear more about compact just so you know